All right, we are in 1 Samuel 3 today. Head for verse 19, would you please? This will be our last uh, message on this sermon topic, living godly in an ungodly world. That doesn't mean we have solved the ungodly world problem. All right, because guess what? It's still there. But we are stressing our need to live godly. And that's a thing that goes beyond a sermon series, doesn't it? Absolutely. So, today we will look at it for the last time. This, this has been a character study. We spent most of our time in the life of Hannah, and then we have moved to Samuel at his younger ages here. We dealt with Samuel last week. We'll deal with Samuel again today. That's her little boy she left at the tabernacle, and... Um, so we're going to pick up our story there today in 1 Samuel three nineteen through 21. Then Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall or fail, whichever you might have. All Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Just a simple thought here, but Shiloh is where the tabernacle was set up. All right, that's where the people came to worship. That's where uh, Samuel was left as a very young child, maybe as early as three years old. As soon as he was weaned, his mother took him and dropped him off at the tabernacle, and that's where Samuel grew up. We've got a lot of things to cover here today, so let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, help us as we focus on your word. Sometimes it's challenging just in in nature of uh, understanding. Sometimes there's a lot going on, and our hearts are are divided. And so I pray that uh, for this next uh, while we can keep our eyes on you, study from your word, and and be challenged by it. And I pray, Lord, that you accomplish much in each of our lives today, because we've spent this time with you. Thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. When we went back to Hannah, these are the things we have seen. Uh, The principles of living godly in an ungodly world. We've learned that dependence is very important. And Hannah showed us that in the very fact that she prayed. We found that dedication to the Lord is important, and we need that too. And Hannah kept her promise, didn't she? She made a vow and she followed through. We found that devotion to the Lord is very important. Our devotion is built upon our understanding of Him. And she, when she prayed, really focused heavily on His character in the first part of her prayer in chapter number 3. Difference is the fourth word I gave to you, and she was different because her Lord was was different. She learned from him, and she focused on his actions there, and he was quite a bit different than the world around. Uh, Her day, especially our day still, he's quite a bit different from our society and our world. And uh, those who follow him and know him are going to be different. You're called to be different. And we're going to give some of that emphasis here, especially this morning. Um, It's just the way that Hannah saw her and her relationship with the Lord in light of the culture around her. 
We're going to add a couple of other words here, but the first word we discussed last week was determined. Samuel was determined. Even though he was threatened and even though he was afraid, uh, he was determined to follow through and tell the truth. And uh, I called that faith. And all those things, we know those are good principles for us to live by. These things revolving around the Lord. And I pressed upon you the contrast between the ungodly in their ungodly culture and the godly in the ungodly culture. That's the point. The culture is probably not going to change at all. Unfortunately, while we're in it, this is what we are. This is what we get. Uh, we are living in an ungodly day, ungodly age, ungodly world, and yet this world will pass away. And I look forward to that. Someday we're going to be with Christ. We're going to dwell in a place where righteousness dwells. Wouldn't that be great? That day is coming too. But I find it very interesting, as I've been studying God's Word for a little while, that uh, in the Bible, in the midst of these sinful generations, the Lord would raise up a man or a woman or men and women uh, who are a contrast to their society. They stand out. They become dependent upon Him. They're dedicated to Him. They're devoted to Him. They're different and they're determined to live to please God. Ultimately, they set an example for us to read about. It's written there in Scripture. And as we read about it, guess what we're called to do? Learn from it. Walk in their steps. So these are the principles I set before you. And yet, most of the time in the Old Testament, if we studied from it, we'd find out how not to do it. There are so many mistakes and failures and compromises along the way. And it's kind of frustrating. And we don't want to mimic those things. But when a godly individual, an example is set before us, uh, it's best for us to focus on that individual, not to glorify them, not to put them on a pedestal, so to speak, in any way, but to see and to know that we too can be difference makers. And if our world ever needs difference makers, it's now. We can be difference makers in our generation that the Lord has placed us in. And I kept asking this question, if no one else would do it, will you? If no one else will follow the Lord with a whole heart, will you? If no one else will live by the principles of God's Word, will you? Now, personally, I'm not hoping that just one person in our church stands up and says, I'll, I'll do it. I'm hoping that the whole church stands up and says, we will do it. We will be different. We will be those who will be the ones who are devoted and dedicated and, and, and determined and dependent upon our Lord. Even if there's no other church on this planet that will do it, let us be the one. Let us be the one. We don't have to wonder if society is sinful enough for us to do this. Some people say, well, when the day comes when it's important, we'll do it. We'll just wait until it gets a little worse than this. <laughs> you don't have to look very far to see how ungodly this world really is. But here's the reality. Our call is the same regardless of our culture. Our call is the same regardless of what's in the news. Our call is based on the one who called us. And in First Peter it says what he said. 
First Peter 1, 15 through 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a universal call to the believer no matter what situation they're in. Whether it's good days or bad days. Whether it's a hot, tough society or an easy society to live in. We are called to be holy. Is that true? Absolutely. Every single time it comes down to that point. But the reality is, it's not easy, is it? It's not easy being holy in an unholy world. And we're not doing it because holiness is easy. We're not being holy because everyone else is doing it. I said that. I thought you'd laugh. (laughs) Who else is doing it? (laughs) We're not doing it because we want to be noticed. I hope not. But we're holy because our God is holy. We're living out a life that He's called us to live. And we don't have to wait for culture to fail. Or to fall apart. We don't need to wait for society to sin or to get worse. We don't need times to get difficult or more difficult. Practice holiness now. It just happens that the culture is pretty bad. But practice holiness now. And I would think that if we find the practice to become the habit, we will still do it when things get worse. Right? Okay. Our title is Living Godly in an Ungodly World. That does not happen by accident. You don't wake up in the morning and say, Woo, suddenly I'm godly. It doesn't work that way. It's a walk with the Lord. I told you. I've been impressed with the godliness of Hannah in our study here. She had a deep faith. She was dependent upon her Lord. She devoted herself to her Lord. She even had an incredible vocabulary of rich theological words to describe him. And in the context of her world, she was a gem, a rare gem. Because that's not what was coming from every place else. She wasn't different because of the world around her. She was different because she knew her God. And that's what I've seen in just a little glimpse we've got of her in Scripture. Folks, the knowledge of God in this regard, we read these people and say, but they were different. They were different. They're different than we are today. They they wouldn't live in our day and age. They're not like us. They're, They're flannel graph people, by the way. They're not really real, or so we say. The knowledge of God and that relationship that she had with him, you can have too. Do you know it? You can have it too. I've been to Bible college and seminary and some of the others in this room have too. But you don't need to go to a school someplace, and I'm going to say that carefully, just so that you know God. Guess what you have in your hand right now? A beautiful book we call a Bible. Guess who it talks about? Him. How much have you gotten to know Him? That's our emphasis. After all, we are a Bible church, aren't we? And so we emphasize the fact that we need time alone with Him. Time in His Word to learn who He is so it changes our lives. That's my appeal to you. I continually make that appeal to you. Uh, And we're going to look at Samuel again today. And guess what the appeal is going to be? 
Same thing. It's almost like I just gave you the whole application before I gave you the sermon. But that's the whole point of this. He was determined to speak the truth. Even though he was afraid, even though his culture threatened him, uh, still he trusted the Lord, as I, I would stress all the way through Scripture. It says that's the contrast to fear is faith. So Samuel lived in the same ungodly times as Hannah, his mother. The same spiritual leadership was weak at the top. His name was Eli. The same sinful underneath. Hophni and Phinehas were still there. The Levites who were supposed to be godly examples were not. Were not. I could set before you Elkanah, and I've been kind of hard on this guy, Hannah's husband. I know it. I think he probably was a nice guy. I mean, he did love his wife. Uh, But there's a lot of nice guys who aren't very godly. Have you ever noticed that? They're out there, and you don't mind them having for your neighbor, but you wouldn't pick them for your pastor. He was a Levite. He was supposed to lead the people in spiritual things, and we don't see anything spiritual coming from him. But I just take the bigger picture, and I look at the Levites at the end of the book of Judges, which is the context, and they were rotten. It's not a pretty picture. But that's the world that Samuel grew up in. That's the world that Hannah knew as well. The whole book of Judges describes that day as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That was the culture they lived in. Samuel grew up in that culture. He was living at a tabernacle where the heart of the issue was this culture. I want to I set this and describe this to you this way. Just a, a, a comparison, if you will. When we gather here on a Sunday morning... That's meaningful to us, isn't it? That's important to us. We we come here uh, to worship our Lord. We come here to learn of Him. We we come here uh, expecting to learn something about Him, don't we? Okay, a few of you do. Um, We're here for a reason. We we don't just come. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you just come. You don't know why you're here, but you know that's what you've been taught. But... There are so many of us, we come here for this reason. We come here for fellowship, don't we? We come here for opportunity to serve with one another or serve each other. Isn't that true? That's what we do. Imagine for a minute, you come into a church on a Sunday morning where the leadership shows no care for the service whatsoever. Imagine you come into a place where your leadership is unprepared and does a sloppy job at the things that they are called to do and very careless at their actions. Concern you, wouldn't it? You come into a place where the music was flat all the time. I mean flat, not just in tone, but flat, has no heart. You come into a place where worship is lacking altogether and nobody is feeding you from God's Word. You, you find a pastoral staff that spends more time in self-gratification or getting fat on taking from you or sinfully satisfying their own selfish, carnal desires. You like it yet? Imagine that you're... Another picture. 
You're a hungry sheep, and you're led out into a place to get food, and all it is is a barren pasture with weeds growing all over it. That's a picture I think that sometimes reflects the church as well in the society we live in. Imagine a church now that they threaten you to comply with whatever they tell you to do. You're stolen from and abused verbally. You like it? You probably say, this is terrible. I just described Samuel's world to you. Those were the leaders that he grew up with. That was the culture he lived in. Like I said, many times they put it on flannel graph and it's so impersonal. We see it as this little image of a Samuel placed on a, black, a bland background and we go ahead and tell the story. But in real life, Samuel lived in an ungodly world. It was around him all day long. Every example set before him was negative. I wanted to tell you all that because so often we bypass the culture when we look at a man or a woman of faith in God and we just look at their situation. This one thing that happened in their life and we say, well, that was pretty cool. But I want to show the, the way that we correspond to what he lived in and why he was so unique in his day. In verse 19, look at that. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall. All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. When I was reading this, and thinking through what I was going to share on, I'm looking through the passage, and I'm reading chapter 3, and I'm reading chapter 4, and I'm going into chapter 5, and I go on to chapter 6, and I'm reading all the way through there thinking, what is it that I want to hit for this last message? And that verse 20 just kept popping out at me. Every time I went by it, I said, why does that keep saying that? It just, it was right there in front of me. Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. You may say, okay, what's the big deal? Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. We know that. His name's on the book, right? Why is Samuel being confirmed as a prophet of the Lord important? Why does that stand out? Let me start with this. Samuel was a priest. Samuel was a priest. Samuel was taught how to be a priest at the tabernacle. Although he had pretty poor teachers, didn't he? He was taught how to be a priest. Samuel's job was that of a priest. He was there to help people in worship and what we call service. He was there to help with the sacrifices. He was there to open the doors and light the candlesticks and then present the bread and all the other. That was Samuel's job. He was a priest at the tabernacle. He served the Lord as his mother had vowed his entire life. And if you read through the life of Samuel, he spent a lot of time there at that tabernacle doing the job of a priest. But what does the text say? Does it say he was confirmed as a priest? It says he was confirmed as a prophet. A prophet of the Lord. That's not the same job. That's what struck me as very interesting. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's a priest! And it says prophet in the text. 
I said, so I've got to explore this a little bit more. Because a priest has a job. A priest has a job to lift men up to God in worship, in sacrifice and worship. They take the needs of the people and pray for them and offer up offerings for them and they lift them up before the Lord. In a sense, he was a mediator between man and God. A prophet took the message of the Lord and brought it down to the people. He came with God's word and shared it on God's behalf to the people around him. He too was a mediator, but he was from God to man. And he brought the message down so people would hear it. Priests were born priests. If you were born of that family, you knew your job when you grew up. You were to be a priest because dad was a priest. And that worked in the family line. Prophets are different. Prophets are selected by the Lord. Could become any tribe, every tribe. He could pick people as he chose, and in a variety of ways. We read the stories of all the prophets in the Old Testament. They're all different, aren't they? God chose them for different times in different places. Everyone expected Samuel to be a priest. And guess what? He was a good one. But what is surprise it is to find he was a prophet. He was a prophet. Look at verse 20 again. All Israel, from Dan, that's all the way to the top, to Beersheba, which is all the way to the bottom, if you put it on a map, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet to the Lord. Now, let's work with that word confirm just for a minute, because I think this is rather interesting. The word is amon. It looks like amen, but there's an A instead of an E on the last vowel there. Amon, it means to build something up. It's the word you use if you're training your children. You're nurturing your children in order that they might be strong in their faith, that they might be uh, true that they might be trustworthy, that they might be morally fit and certain kind of people. You want that, don't you? You do that with your children, your grandchildren, don't you? You want that? Or do you want these little terrors that run all over the planet? You think that's important. You want to raise them up the right way. This is that word. Very interesting. It's sometimes used as established. If you're reading the King James, he was established. Uh, the NIV says he was attested. In other words, everyone looked at him and said, yep, it's true. This man is faithful. This man is trustworthy. This man is somebody who was brought up right. Now, remember who brought him up. Now wonder, <laughs> how did that happen? This is a very interesting word. Let me give you a simple picture. Say that we all decided this afternoon it would be a pretty day. We'll go for a walk. All right? Whole congregation down one little path. That's an interesting sight. But we're, we're all walking down through a forest. Picture it in your mind. Beautiful path. We're walking down this path. We come up around a corner. There's a small river there. I don't know where that would be. But anyway, there's a small river there. And over that path and that river is a wooden bridge. And as you look at that bridge, it's very interesting that even before you step on it, your eyes have already scanned the quality of that bridge. 
as you're approaching it, it's already sent important information up to your head, to your brain, about that bridge, even before you got there. It saw whether or not the bridge was standing. It saw whether or not there were planks missing. It saw whether or not there were people swimming underneath it who had fallen out. Your brain has processed this information that the eye sent to it, and it sent a message right down to your feet to say, either keep walking or stop. What's interesting is that there was a determination made very quickly as to the quality of that bridge. And so, so many times we might have that, that decision made in our head, but then we still want to test it. We say, well, it looks okay, it looks safe, I think we could walk on it, but normally what we do, the first person on it takes the ginger steps. Nice and easy. They step carefully because they want to make sure that it's a competent thing to do. You got that picture in your mind, this building of confidence where people say, yes, that's the one I trust. That's the word that these people had for Samuel. I trust him. He's been established. He's been confirmed as a prophet. Remember, this is how different he was. How different he was. We're not looking at a priest. Though, like I said, he was a good one. He was one of about 20,000. There were a lot of priests that were eligible in that tribe who were able to serve. He was just one among all the others. But they all stood back and said, whoa, he's a prophet. And everyone attested to it. Everyone says, yeah, the test is proven. He's a prophet. He's one who heard from God. He's one who speaks his word. Why did they never say that of Eli? Those are questions that popped into my head as I was studying this through. Why didn't Eli ever have something said about him that way? Matter of fact, here's the testimony of Eli. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. That's the testimony of the leadership. Now, we also notice that Hophni and Phinehas were not confirmed as anything positive at all, were they? Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were very, very evil. We don't see any good words about the people confirmed them as something positive at all. What's interesting is we never even hear that of Elkanah either. I know I keep picking on that poor guy. But there's no testimony given about his his evaluation by the world around him. Nobody's confirming him for one thing or another. And if you study the context carefully, there was one other prophet on the scene. Do you remember? There was a prophet that came to Eli the first time. The prophet without name, we don't even know who he was, but we also know he went away unheeded because he ministered to Eli and told him for the first time that God was angry at him and gave Eli a chance to repent, and Eli did not do that. It didn't change anything in his family. When I was thinking of all that, I thought, wow, this is a really dismal situation. But what I like is the fact that God began to speak through Samuel. It was rare. 
it was rare. Samuel grew up, and the Lord was with him. That was a rare thing in his society. And none of his words failed. That was unusual in his society. In verse 21, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel. That was rare in his day. So what's all this unique stuff going on here? Samuel was confirmed. He was attested. He was trusted as a prophet during the ungodly days. I want to stress this for you. Listen carefully. It was during those days that the people noticed there was a man who's different here. He was shown to be a prophet while Eli was still alive. Even to the point that uh, Eli had, by this point, had heard the same message from God twice. And we still don't see the man repenting. He was still alive. Samuel was showed to be a prophet like this, even while Hophni and Phinehas continued to pollute the priesthood and to spend their days in the same tabernacle that Samuel ministered in. Many times you think, boy, Samuel, why didn't you just get out of there? Because that was Samuel's job. But the fact was, Samuel was different. He could have done his job just like Hophni and Phinehas. Wouldn't have been pretty. He could have just carried on with the flow. Could have done what everybody else does. He could have acted like everybody else does. But he stood out and he didn't leave the tabernacle. In our culture, we think, we just got to get away from this sinful world. We got to go find another place to live. We got to go build this or build that. You know, put walls around it so the culture doesn't get in. We need to protect ourselves. We got a beautiful place in Hillsdale. Not much culture seeps its way inside our doors. We say, well, I'm glad for that because there's a lot of ugly things out there. But are we meant to hide ourselves in an ungodly world? To run away from the culture and say, well, I can't be different because of my environment? Samuel's environment was terrible. And guess what? He was different. He was diligent to follow the Lord. I love that word. Diligent. This is a man who, even though Eli was still there, he was diligent to grow in the Lord. Even though Hophni and Phinehas were there, he was diligent to follow the Lord. Samuel was shown to be a prophet, even as you carry on the next couple of chapters, when Israel was deep in idolatry. He said, really? Oh yeah, that's the story of the Old Testament, really. But they had idolatry problems. Just huge amount of idolatry problems. If you start reading in chapter 4 and moving on, it's a terrible story. The, the army of Israel was in battle with the army of the Philistines. And it wasn't going well. One day, they started into the battle. Israel lost 4,000 men. Imagine that. 4,000 men did not come home that day. And the people of Israel were dismayed. And they were trying to think, what what happened here? Um, It's interesting to me. This is my paraphrase, okay? They blamed the Lord. Why was it the Lord with us? And it's like, where was he? Shouldn't he have been there? Oh, oh, oh. We shouldn't think that way. He wasn't there because we didn't take him. 
He lives in a box. Uh, that's my paraphrase too. He lives in the Ark of the Covenant. He's a God in the box. That's why we lost. We didn't take the box with us. And so they ran back to the tabernacle and they said, guess what we need? we got to fight this battle. We need the Ark of the Covenant. That box that God lived in, right? So they didn't ask God if that was a great idea. They didn't ask Samuel, who was confirmed as a prophet, if that was a good idea. But instead, they walked into the tabernacle, and guess whose job it was to cover that thing so it could be carried out? Hophni and Phinehas. Picture it. I just picture it this way. They walked in, they grabbed the veil, they shove it to the side, they cover it up, they pick it up, they start walking out there into the midst of a battle. They start marching into the battle. The people are screaming happy, like their team just scored a a touchdown. But yeah, we got it. The Philistines got really worked up for a second. And then they said, what? Why are we upset? Let's go get them. Came into a battle. Samuel worked in that tabernacle that day. I assume he did, because that's where he lived. And as he's sitting there doing his thing, maybe he's working with the bread or the candlestick or whatever he's doing with sacrifices, in comes Hophni and Phinehas. They pull the curtain out. They grab the ark. They walk out the door with it. They took it into battle because God lived in that box and they needed the God of the box to win the battle. Guess what happened? They lost. They lost badly. 30 Thousand men died that day. Thirty thousand. Yes, Hophni and Phinehas were two of them. The ark was captured by the Philistines. Eli will hear the news, fall over in his chair, and drop dead. Phinehas' wife was giving birth to a child, and she dies. The child is born. They name it Ichabod. The glory has departed. What was interesting to me. Samuel entered into that tabernacle that afternoon. And what did he hear? Not the voice of Eli. He was familiar with it all his life, but it wasn't there anymore. Samuel came into that room, and Hophni and Phinehas weren't there anymore. Samuel came into this room, and that ark was not behind the curtain. It was not there. Looking at that situation... Interesting, the words of Phineas' wife, just before she dies, she says, The glory has departed from Israel. The ark was taken. Therefore, God doesn't live with us anymore. That was her conclusion. God's not here anymore. But let's look at that statement just for a moment. When we focus on the situation, when we focus on the circumstances and the events, and things not going the way that they ought to go, it's easy to conclude that the ugliness of the day has won. It's easy to think that it's over now, and God cannot be seen, and God cannot be found. Eli was gone, that's true. Hophni and Phinehas were gone, that's true. 34,000 men were gone now. They didn't come home to their families. The Ark of the Covenant was gone, but who was still standing in the tabernacle? Samuel. Is it any wonder 
that a man could live in an ungodly society, even see the price tag of sin, and still stand godly in the midst of it all? So many times I picture it like this, where where I've seen this on videos and YouTube and stuff, when a flood's coming down through a, a, a tiny river and it's a huge flood and you see what it's doing to the homes along the shore. And it pick up a whole house and it grab it in its current and drag it down into the waters. You've seen that before in picture at least. But it's an awesome sight to see. It's just mind-boggling. The year that, that tsunami came across the northern part of Japan and it was on the news. And you watch entire communities being swept in the water and moved along and I thought... Whoa, what a picture of that. Samuel just visualized that in the loss of everything around him, just like a flood had just gone through and washed it all away. And he's left standing there, watching the ruin of sin right before his eyes. And yet he still stood godly. He still stood there. Where's our Samuels today? Our world is in that flood, isn't it? Sin is just marching on. And are we going to be still standing when everything else is destroyed around us? The foundations are torn up. They're rushing headlong into sin and their decisions and in their practices. The point is, Samuel was different. Samuel was a different kind of person. He was devoted. He was dedicated. He was determined. He was diligent. He stood determined to know God and serve Him well. That was the life of Samuel. Just like his mother. He was living in an ungodly world. Religious help was missing. Family consolation was impossible. The bitter words of his fellow priests were all around him. A place where it didn't help to appeal to the authorities. They were rotten. It didn't help to suggest a bill in Congress. It didn't work. They didn't protest the tabernacle or the services. He didn't retaliate. He just took it to the Lord. He stood where the Lord would have him stand. He was different. I've said this before. But folks, there's more power in prayer than any petition. There's more power in prayer than any protest. There is more power in prayer than any politician can give you. I'm afraid every time we watch the news, and maybe it's just me, we see what's going on in this country and, and we see efforts of people trying to fix the wrong by, by legislating what's right and putting their energies into that. I understand the process. But if we've got strength to spend, let us spend it on knowing the Lord. That's what our culture needs. That's what our world needs. It needs people who will stand Stand. Everybody in Israel knew Samuel was different. Everybody did. What does Scripture say about standing in the Lord? You know it. It's in Ephesians. Chapter number 6. You know the section? You know what I'm talking about? It's called the armor of God. Listen to the words. Verse 10 starts. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces in wicked places of wickedness in heavenly places of all things. We thought that heaven was safe. 
Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. That's what we need right now. People standing in the Lord. Standing in the Lord. And he tells you how to do it. Having done everything, stand firm, stand firm, having girded your loins with truth. Stand firm, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Stand firm with your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You know, because the world is rotten doesn't mean we stop taking the message to them. I think they need it more than ever. Stand firm. In addition, taking up the shield of faith so you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Stand firm with the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he goes on to say, and with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. That's a powerful passage. I think it's like a flashing red light on the dashboard right now in the Christian church. We need to stand firm. Samuel was diligent to be found that way. I would say that's the best characteristic of what he's portraying before us. A man diligent to be different. Stood firm even though the world around him was a mess. You don't have to wait for your world to become a mess to do it. Do it now. Stand firm. Be diligent. Stand firm. If there is one thing that this world needs, is godly people. People who will stand firm in the midst of an ungodly world. People who know how to pray. We need that. People that God sees. People that God knows. People that God cares for. People that God does something through. Are you going to be one of them? Are you going to be one? God is the one who holds you up. Do you trust Him? God is the one who encourages your heart. Do you trust Him? God is the one who gives you strength. God is the one who gives you direction. You live in an ungodly world, but you live with God. Let God be God. Don't put Him in a box. Let God be God. And trust Him. And trust Him. And trust Him, even if everything around you seems to be against it. Trust Him. Trust Him. Remember our key words for the year? He is able. Do you believe it? That's what it comes down to. We need strong people who say, that's true. We need strong people who are established by the Lord. Established by the Lord. Nurtured and grown up in the Lord so they're strong to serve in the time of great need. Maybe you are a Hannah. Maybe you are the Samuel this world is looking for. Or if nothing else, your family's looking for. Maybe your, your job site is looking for. Maybe your, your town is looking for. You can be that person. Dependent on the Lord. Dedicated to the Lord. Devoted to the Lord. Different in the Lord, determined in the Lord, diligent in the Lord. Those are the things I saw in the life of these two individuals. I think they're powerful. And I hope that they, they resonate in our hearts. I appeal to you again, like I have all this other time. Know His Word. Then you get to know Him. 
And we need people like that in our day and age, don't we? Heavenly Father, these are important principles for us to learn. And we thank you for the Samuels of our day and age, but the Samuel that was true to life, the Samuel we read about here today, we could glean from him uh, a diligent mindset to be grown in the right way, to stay firm in an evil culture, to be different. When it all came down to the end, Lord, we're talking about him and the difference he made because he walked with you. And I pray, Lord, that those around us might see a difference too when they look at us, that we have determined and been diligent to be found in you. That's where we're found, to be walking and growing and learning and strong because the waves of our culture are pretty powerful, Lord, but you're greater still. Teach us to trust you, to grow in you as a church. And as individuals, may we found to be like a Samuel, like a Hannah, certainly living godly in an ungodly day. Impress this upon us, Lord, as you will. I know you work in each heart in unique ways. And so, as each one has a need today, provide for us, Lord, your direction that we might serve you the best. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.